This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin-A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Oh, wow. Let me know if I'm, like, hurting the tree or... It's really fun. There we go, yeah. It's, it's very gratifying. Like, olives just go flying off in all directions at your, at your whim. You asked for it. We've made it. An episode all about olive oil. This is Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. And that was the sound of my friend and Gastropod fan, Sarah Sklarsik, harvesting olives by combing through the branches using a vibrating electric rake. So maybe, maybe this is like a really deep tissue massage for an olive tree. (laughs) I like, I like it. Is I was. It feels like you're stroking it, stroking yeah. and tickling. But kind of rough, right? I mean, it's kind of like, mmm. That's my friend Robin Sloan, co-owner of both the olives and the vibrating rake. Cynthia and I visited the olive grove he leases in the Bay Area to learn what olive oil actually is and how you make it. But that's not all we wanted to find out about the green gold this episode. You might have heard that people have been enjoying olive oil for thousands of years. Is it true that ancient Greeks and Romans smeared the stuff all over their bodies? And what on earth does extra virgin actually mean? Like, how can something be more virginal than a virgin? That doesn't even make sense. And something a lot of you wanted to know, is the extra virgin olive oil in your pantry the real deal? That's what listener Brenda Vest thought after she heard an episode of ours last spring. Like, I love listening to your your podcast. It's like the fake foods one really got to me. I was like, oh my God, I hope they do an olive oil one. Brenda's wish was our command. So here we go. My favorite ones are the thousand-year trees, the grandfather trees or grandmother trees, some of which, you know, the Crusaders saw on their way south uh, to the Holy Lands to break some stuff. Tom Mueller wrote the book Extra Virginity, the Sublime and Scandalous World of Olive Oil. These olive trees, they genuinely can live for hundreds, even a thousand years. Tom says olive trees are hardcore. You can chop them off at ground level and they'll spring back. They've been growing wild in the Mediterranean for millennia. The oleaster or wild olive has provided food for people and pre-people for a long, long time. And there are olive pits in Neanderthal caves and Gibraltar and leaves and pits in various Paleolithic and Neolithic sites where Homo sapiens was collecting 
small olives of the oleaster, berries, basically, hunting and gathering berries. The hardy, productive olive tree has long been the focal point of human settlements. It's quite inspiring to see these huge, ancient, braided trunks, sometimes with marks of war on them, with ancient fires that they've survived. We didn't get to visit any grandfather or grandmother trees this episode. But I'm not complaining because we did get to go to two olive groves, one in the old world and one in the new. Hello, my name is Anna Casadei. I'm growing here in Castello del Trebbio. Anna and her husband own about 10,000 olive trees spreading over the hills in Tuscany, not too far from Florence. We were there on a sunny summer morning. The trees stretched out around us. The leaves were rippling in the breeze. I think the olive tree, it's uh, unbelievable because he has some leaves uh, that uh, has different kind of color. And depending if you have the wind, the flu going on, uh, each time you are looking at the olive tree, it changed color. It came from silver to green. Uh. And then on an equally sunny day at the end of October, we visited a much smaller olive grove, precisely 327 trees. It was near Fremont, just south of San Francisco in California. I'm Robin Sloan, and I'm the co-founder of Fat Gold, and I'm a novelist too. I'm Catherine Tomagin. I'm also the co-founder of Fat Gold, and I am an olive oil maker by trade. Catherine first visited this grove as a consultant. She'd been brought in to help its owners make better oil. I was just awestricken because it was a beautiful time of year, and the hills were still green, um, and it was basically the prettiest olive grove I'd seen in, in my travels, especially in California. So when the current owners were getting old and wanted to scale back their workload, Catherine and Robin decided to lease the grove themselves. Both of the groves we visited have a handful of different kinds of olive trees growing. Tom says there are more than 600 different subspecies of domesticated olives total. Different varieties grow better in different ecosystems, or people choose the subspecies they like based on flavor. Catherine and Anna's groves have pretty similar varieties. We have six different varieties that are planted here. Most of them are traditional Tuscan varieties, and those are Frantoio, Licino, Moreno, Moriolo, and Pendolino. And then we also have a sixth called Tajasca, which is a, an olive variety that is traditionally from Liguria, the Liguria region of Italy, which is on the Mediterranean coast. What's kind of cool is you can really quickly start to tell these different varieties apart in the grove, even if you've never really paid attention to the shape of an olive tree before. And this is the Moreno. That one looks kind of fuzzy and hairy. That's I kind of like the way that one looks. And this one here is the Moriolo, which I think is my favorite. But it's like the mopey Moriolo. They're also sort of droopy. And then this is the Pendolino. And that real bushy, very vigorous one is the Tajasca. The varieties that both Anna and Catherine have on their properties, they've been growing in the Mediterranean for thousands of years. Olive trees first came to California with the Spanish missionaries in the 1600s. And California had a robust olive canning industry throughout the last century. Um, and then canned olives have kind of fallen out of fashion. Um, and I, I think probably in the late 80s, early 90s, people started really wanting to plant olives for olive oil. And so this modern era of olive oil production uh, was born in California. Uh, and then in the last 20 years, the olive industry has exploded. And one of the main reasons behind that explosion is a new way of planting, growing, and harvesting olives. It's called 
super high density planting. And what it means is the olives are planted really close together in very tight rows, and they're pruned in a particular way so that they can be machine harvested. One of the benefits of this super high density style of planting is that it's made olive oil economically viable in California. As you all probably know, land is extremely expensive in California, and so is labor. Since then, we've seen olive productivity explode in California and the industry really being able to make olive oil at an affordable price point for people or for consumers that are had never heard of California olive oil before. Basically, the way these Californian groves are planted and pruned means you can take a lot of the labor costs out of the equation by using a machine to do the harvesting. And when I say machine harvested, I mean there's a huge machine that goes over and basically swallows the entire olive tree and has these sort of rubbery fingers that knocks the olives off and there's a sort of a catch basin underneath and it goes over an entire row of olives without stopping harvesting every tree in that row. So it's actually really interesting and exciting, um, and I do a lot of work with super high-density olives, but, um, you know, there's something pretty special about the traditionally spaced where they let them grow to their, their full maturity and beauty. Catherine and Robin's Grove has trees more traditionally spaced, wider apart, and it is indeed gorgeous. Plus, they can grow a wider variety of olives with different flavors. Only three varieties currently work well with the super high-density system. Nikki, you and I visited it together, but you also got to go help out when they were harvesting the trees, which I unfortunately missed. Yes. Turns out that even though I am a Californian now, I am actually very cost-effective labor. Free, in fact. Robin and Catherine gathered a group of their friends early one Saturday morning to help out. The olives have been growing on the trees the whole year. Uh, As you'll see when we harvest them, they're quite dark and they're already quite oily. Like they are ready. They're bursting with oil, ready for the oil to be extracted. So here's the steps of what we're doing today. Step one, lay out some nets under the trees to catch the olives. Here, so let's go, let's pull it in as tight as you can. Excuse me. Step two, fire up the vibrating rakes. So I think for all the people who are gonna be using the um, magic wand, the the vibrating rake, uh, whatever, (laughs) the the vibrators, it's going to be a learning curve to learn like how how we do it like and so we just don't actually know what the best technique is for getting all the fruit off and kind of like who knows what it's going to be like that's right none of us had ever done this before not even Catherine. oh my gosh we're totally going to try this so give it a shot let's see what happens It was weird and super fun. You just kind of combed the vibrating rake through the branches and the olives started whizzing off in all directions. You said nobody had ever done it before. Was there a steep learning curve? Did you watch a video on YouTube or something? No instruction needed. We were all just naturals. Honestly, it was like if you've ever groomed a pet, you get a feel for how to move the rake through the branches really quickly. Yeah, they're pretty hard. A bunch of us held up the nets at the edges, and then others, including a handful of kids, followed behind with buckets, and harvesting the olives that the rakes had left behind. Some of those olives really didn't want to leave home. Catherine and Robin had a great time at their very first olive harvest. But earlier this summer, things were looking a little grim. They had an infestation of the olive farmer's nemesis, the olive fly. It's basically a fruit fly that has a very symbiotic relationship with olives. So they lay their eggs in the olive and the larvae eat their way out, essentially ruining the fruit. Um, So there was a few weeks where we started seeing some 
uh, damaged, some damaged fruit, and I definitely freaked out. I was like, I don't know, I don't think this farming thing is for me. It's like an emotional roller coaster, it's all these ups and downs. They used a number of organic measures to get rid of the olive flies. They even handpicked contaminated olives to stop the fly from spreading. But there were a few fly-bitten olives left when we visited. If you want to break one of these open oh, yeah, just yeah. to see the inside and kind of see what it does to the fruit. You can see, oh, there's the worm. Oh, yeah. Just so right there. gross. There's the little, yeah, ew. It's, it's, it's very disgusting. So basically, most of our effort during the year, with the exception of pruning and harvesting, um, the third biggest task for us is protecting our fruit from the olive fly. I should say here that the entire orchard looked like some kind of ghost orchard art installation. Catherine and Robin had sprayed the trees with white clay as a coating on the olives to try to stop the fly from getting in. And all that clay, I ended up completely coated in it myself while I was harvesting. My hair was a solid clay particle-based structure by the end of the day. This isn't only a problem in California. The olive fly is a huge threat to groves in Tuscany, too. Anna's been battling it herself lately, and it's only getting worse because of climate change. The winters are just too warm. They don't always get cold enough to kill the flies. And uh, we are always about 2-3% that it's nothing. In the last year, we've grown up uh, since 7-8%. And you have to take care. But... Every year you have more and more. And this has happened because we don't have any more cold winter. She's not dying. She's still there waiting that the new season came. Anna has her mind on olive flies. She isn't yet worried about a different disease that's basically decimated entire regions of southern Italy's olive trees. Specifically what we're talking about is the southern region of Apulia, the, the Salento area. So this is uh, at the very tip of the heel of the boot, let's say. Um, so you have areas where you really have no live olive trees anymore. That's Rodrigo Almeida. He's a professor of environmental science at the University of California, Berkeley, and he studies this terrible olive plague. He says millions of Italian olive trees have died. At some point in the past, this bacterium that's, that's called Xylella fastidiosa uh, was introduced into the region. This Xylella bacteria colonizes the part of the plant called the xylem network basically the plumbing system for water flow inside the olive tree. Essentially, as the bacteria moves and colonizes the plant, it uh, clogs up water flow, and the plants are essentially thirsty. So the trees die of thirst. The xylella bacteria is transmitted from tree to tree by insects while they're feeding on the water and nutrients that circulate around in the tree. And Rodrigo says that if a mature olive tree gets infected, it can go from healthy to dead in a couple of years. Like Rodrigo says, Xylella was introduced to Italy. It's not from there originally. Scientists first detected it in 2013, but Rodrigo thinks it got to Italy a couple of decades earlier. So this is another point that's um, somewhat controversial, but today with the data that we have available, it, all the data indicate that it, or, it originated from um, Central America. In fact, xylella is widespread in Central America and South America, where it infects coffee plants and citrus. In Brazil, it got to a point where something like 6 million citrus trees were getting infected and destroyed each year. In North America, in California, xylella infects grapevines. There are grapevines in southern Italy, too, but they haven't been destroyed by xylella. And Catherine and Robin's olives in California so far are safe. 
Why is that? Well, it turns out that different strains of xylella attack different plants. So far, scientists aren't seeing a lot of, oh, the grapevine xylella just jumped to the olive tree. But that's not 100% failsafe, because the xylella from Central America that came to Italy didn't start out on an olive tree. So it's complicated, but it's dangerous. Xylella is a pretty common plant disease, and like most plant diseases, you have some tools to stop it from spreading. The main one is quarantine. This is where growers cut down infected trees, but also all the other nearby trees that might also have been exposed, even if they aren't showing symptoms yet. It's a better safe than sorry approach. The authorities in Italy and the EU called for just this approach, cut down infected trees and the trees surrounding them to be safe. But southern Italians were unwilling to chop down their beloved trees. These olive groves go back centuries. They define the landscape, the culture, the food, everything. So that was one problem. Another challenge was the fact that there was a big social media campaign to undermine the science. You have a very challenging situation at the moment, for example, where you had scientists working on the epidemic being investigated by a local prosecutor, possibly being charged for being responsible for the epidemic. You have people who do not believe in science. For example, they don't believe that xylella fastidiosa is a bacterium. They don't believe that it's present there. They think it's a hoax. They think that the mafia is behind it. There are several different conspiracy theories, and this sort of narrative permeated through the local population, or at least sections of the local population, and you ended up with a situation where politicians were not willing to do what was supposed to be done and make difficult decisions. And as a consequence, the epidemic has spread. Xylella has since been found in Spain and France, too. Honestly, this all makes me a little panicky. I think a full third of my diet must be made up of olive oil. How worried should I really be? I think people are right to be anxious. You know, it's not the end of olive oil production in Europe. Um, It's clear that in specific circumstances, like in southern Italy, if the conditions are just right, you can have a devastating epidemic. Scientists are working to breed xylella-resistant olive tree varieties. They're figuring out new ways to control the insects that spread the xylella. And the EU has cracked down on Italy to make sure people do enforce the quarantine. My understanding is that there's been a little bit of a a shift here where... um, the local government is is complying with the recommendations a little bit more. All my digits are crossed. I can't imagine Italy without olive oil or my life without all the olive oil possible. You and me both. But Cynthia, we've been talking about olives for a few minutes now, and we have yet to even get into what olive oil is. And I know this sounds like a stupid thing to ask. Like, Of course we know what olive oil is. It's oil from an olive. But we figured we should ask the expert. That's author Tom Mueller. We should ask him what it is, just to be sure. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time, and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid, and we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. Red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. 
Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you... I'm telling you, you belong, and I'm telling you, you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. An olive is a droop, technically speaking, a seed fruit like a plum or a cherry. And so olive oil or what you extract from the olive is quite literally fruit juice. <laughs> that is not the answer we were expecting. But why would the juice of a fruit be so oily? Plum juice is not oily. Cherry juice is not oily. Tom says it's all because of what the olive seed needs to grow. It is a nectar that produces magnificent compost, ideal compost for the olive seed, uh, especially when added to a dab of bird droppings. And since then, it's become the ideal nectar for the classical world in terms of bodily beautification, skin health, food, obviously, fuel for lamps and furnaces, lubricant for machines, softener for fabrics, and we're talking the Greco-Roman world, but also well before. Tom told us that the olive was likely first domesticated around 4000 BC in the eastern Mediterranean. And by about 1000 to 1500 BC, it was industrial. Um, and there are huge presses found in Ekron in Israel with huge logs for lever arms that could produce something on the order of a million liters a year. The people who lived around the Mediterranean used olive oil for food, of course. But as Tom said, that's not all. By the time of the Greek and Roman empires, olive oil was thoroughly integrated into all areas of life. First of all, Tom says olive oil was the greatest renewable energy source in antiquity. It burnt super hot and it contained two times the energy of carbon. But people weren't just burning it. They weren't even just eating it. They were, in fact, rubbing it all over their bodies. I mean, the idea of having, doing sports or bathing in the classical civilized manner was unthinkable without olive oil and its various uh, extracts. You know, olive oil is also used in the home as soap and as a base for perfumes and to be used against hair loss and stomach aches and as a religious offering and little vials of olive oil are found in various shrines around the Mediterranean. Olive oil was such a great base for perfume because it kind of melts into the skin and leaves this lovely shine. It's not dry like the alcohol-based perfumes you can buy today. And of course, it contributes its own olivey scent to the mix. I use olive oil as an all-over moisturizer and my partner Tim says it leaves a delicate scent of dinner. Cynthia, you and Tim are not the first to have noticed olive oil's miraculous beautifying powers. After Odysseus got shipwrecked in the Odyssey, he slathers himself in olive oil, and poof, 
Suddenly, he's as handsome as a god. The Prophet Muhammad was said to have used so much olive oil on his body that even his shawl was drenched in it. But like I said, people weren't just rubbing themselves in olive oil in the ancient world. They burned it for light. They used it for frying. As a preservative, which is still very popular today, under oil, you know, your tuna under oil keeps better. As a contraceptive, I'm not sure how that went, but it was, you know, major, major part. And as, as an aphrodisiac, again, I can't vouch for the... Uh, for the active ingredient, but um, it was certainly mentioned by Greco-Roman writers. In the ancient world, olive oil was as valuable as petroleum, rock oil, is today. There were wars fought over it. Huge fortunes were amassed with olive oil. Um, emperors like Trajan and Hadrian were the scions of these flourishing olive oil dynasties in Spain and North Africa. A bit like sheikhs in the Middle East today with petroleum. So it was an empire builder and a source of enormous wealth, as well as the definition, one of the definitions of culture. Um, and also, again, the Romans within their militaristic way, when the Roman legions would go to far-flung lands, they would plant vines and they would try to plant some olive trees. And if it didn't work out, they would certainly have a lot of imports of olive oil because to be the master race in that, in their sense... Uh, you really had to do civilized things, and that involved olive oil. Olive oil has always been popular in the Mediterranean. Other cultures had other fats, butter, coconut oil, sesame oil, ghee, lard, etc. But then, just a few decades ago, a doctor called Ansel Keys, who we've talked about on this podcast before. He starred in our butter episode as the man who villainized our favorite spread. He did a big study looking at what made the difference between countries where people had more heart attacks versus countries where people had fewer. And his findings became popularized as the Mediterranean diet. Keyes published a book on the Mediterranean diet in 1980, extolling the virtues of olive oil and lots of vegetables as a way to avoid heart disease. This dietary advice took a while to catch on, but by the 90s, olive oil had started to become super popular throughout the world, not just in the Mediterranean. One quick note, there are lots of flaws with Key's research, and other fats are not necessarily evil. That said, olive oil is high in antioxidants, and it's delicious. It is delicious, but here's the thing. We tasted a ripe olive straight off the tree in Catherine and Robin's Grove, and it was rank. Oh my god, that's disgusting. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's like bitter and like... Astringent. Astri yeah, like... Very drying, like your entire mouth is dried out and then Whoa. some for a while. Whoa, it's really gross. Ah, can you imagine the people who are like, this tastes disgusting. Let's put it in salt and see what happens and maybe it's going to be delicious. Salt, because that's how you cure an olive and invent table olives for snacking. You just can't, I just have no idea how anybody, I always have these like fascinations, like how did anybody decide that coffee could be, coffee beans could be turned into coffee? Um, same with olives, I have no idea. I mean, they taste not good off of there, but it's there is something that happens in the mill, and it's all a little bit mysterious to me still because I'm, I'm not I'm not like a chemist or a biologist, but there's enzymatic reactions that happen in the crushing process that release mm. those aromas. That's why you don't taste they don't taste good off the tree, but with some enzyme action that happens in the mill with a little mm. bit of you know crushing and agitation. I don't know, it becomes perfume. Nikki, you got a chance not just to pick olives and get clay in your hair, but to see Catherine and Robin milling their olives for the very first time. I'm jealous. You should be jealous. It was awesome. Although we had to leave while everyone else was drinking post-harvest beers and race down the peninsula to the nearest olive mill that was small enough to process our tiny harvest. The team at the mill dumps the olives into a giant bin, and then Catherine hit the magic button. 
The olives started moving up a conveyor belt, and then they fell into a bubble bath. There they go. The olives are getting cleaned up with a little water. And then they got pulled up into the crusher, and that's where things started smelling good. Wow, we've got ground up olives here in what we call the malaxer. It's kind of like, imagine a KitchenAid mixer where you're mixing it up. And this malaxation process allows the cell walls of the olive to break down and the microscopic droplets of oil to coalesce together. And that's what the malaxer is for. But it smells so freaking amazing. Smell it, right? You can smell the olives, yeah. It's one of my favorite smells in the world. The crushed up olives had to stay in the malaxer until Jeff, the guy who runs the mill, started seeing oil. You see the shininess? For those of you on radio, it's shiny. At this point, the paste gets pumped into the decanter, which is a centrifuge that separates the olive skin and flesh from the oil and water. And then the final step, the oil and water, the olive juice, that goes into another centrifuge that separates them and spits out a stream of water and a stream of oil. Catherine and Robin are currently bottling up their oil. We have details on how you can get it at gastropod.com. And if you want to hear what Catherine thought of her very first taste of her very first oil, listen all the way through the credits. Turns out that our crew of a dozen complete novices picked over 1,000 pounds of olives from 32 trees that day, which made 15 gallons of oil or more than 100 bottles worth. And I slept like a baby that night. At this point, most people would mix their oils into blends. Catherine actually plans to keep her different oil varieties separate from one another, single varietal olive oils. And that's one of the ways you can really taste the difference among different oils based on the olive variety. We did a tasting of Anna's oils in Tuscany. Hello. Sit down, relax. Uh, okay. Okay. I'm going to serve you two different varieties. Don't smile because you feel uh, the radiative. But to taste, to taste oil, you have to keep the oil in your mouth and take in air through the teeth. That sound, that sound has a name. I'm going to let Tom say it because my Italian is terrible. Stripaggio or stripping. It's slurping, essentially. You slurp, um, drawing in air in the corners of your mouth, which aerosolizes the oil and makes the aromas go back into your nasal passages. And it allows you to, I mean, it's amazing. If you put olive oil in your mouth and you taste it and you swallow it and, and then you do it again, the same oil, um, and you do this slurping, which sounds something like this. Then you can really get a sense of all the different aromatics and flavors in the oil. It sounds weird, literally, and it feels weird, but it works. Hello. It's a 2016, as I told you, was a warm uh, uh, climate. The flower, it's not so intensive, but the, so I smell, of course, I smell olives. I smell uh, the leaves. So, of course, we gave it a try, too. But <laughs> don't choke on it. I tell you before I can. <laughs> Careful there. And so what it means. It has like a pepper, not the not the like sear the back of your throat, but like a peppery vegetal. I, I mean, it's really strong. I love it. Yeah, very peppery. Was that what you... How was our technique? No, but you see, when you start to... <laughs> yeah. It means that the technique works. 
<laughs> so the fact that you were choking was a good thing. <laughs> it was a good thing. Okay. The choking response doesn't just mean that you're tasting it correctly. Another reason you might be coughing is because of that peppery note, which is also good. The more peppery the olive oil is, the more polyphenols it has. Those peppery polyphenols are what many scientists think are awesome for your health. Anna's oil was delicious, unsurprisingly, and very peppery, as you heard. We joked. But then she gave us the final sample. Her own oil, but so old it had gone rancid. I'm afraid to drink this. Yeah, Do we have to? to? <coughs> oh, no. Just as expected, it tasted disgusting, old, stale, musty. I had to immediately take a taste of her fresh oil to clean my mouth of the flavor. Honestly, I, uh, I make this oil because when we have a tasting, I have to show them. Because it's happened that when I give them my rancid oil that was the old oil, they say there was good. This is what originally inspired Catherine to get in the olive oil game herself. A professor made her taste some rancid olive oil as part of an international food studies class. And he poured us all a little tasting cup full of olive oil. And he said, tell me what you think of this olive oil. So we all tasted it. And all the Americans were like, yep, that tastes like olive oil. And he's like, great, that's rancid. <laughs> and I was like, what? I've been eating rancid olive oil my whole life and I didn't even know it. Like, foodie extraordinaire did not, like, knows nothing about olive oil, clearly. So really what emerged from that experience was consumer rage. Anna and Catherine's point is, many Americans and Northern Europeans kind of like rancid oil because that's what we think olive oil is supposed to taste like. Because a lot of the oil that's sold as lovely extra virgin olive oil, it's not. Olive oil fraud is enormously widespread today. And there are two different kinds, like in politics or in finance. Uh, there's the illegal fraud. You know, the favorite way of doing fraud is simply to sell something which isn't extra virgin as extra virgin and pocket the differential. You know, you can get away with putting really bad olive oil from olives um, into a bottle of extra virgin, sometimes mixed with extra virgin to give it a little more pizzazz and sometimes just sold as is. Bad olive oil is called lampante, officially speaking, meaning it's only fit for use for lighting a lamp. Lampante oil will typically be made from olives that have fallen from the tree rather than being freshly picked. They might have already fermented, which fermentation is often associated with great flavors, but definitely not in the case of olive oil. To make this bad oil remotely palatable, the fakers do something called deodorization. They clean the oil of the nasty overtones by heating it to about 40 to 60 degrees Celsius. It's tasteless at this point, but deodorization also removes any of the healthful compounds. You're left with just the fat. You can also mix it with even cheaper vegetable oils, you know, soybean, sunflower, and so on. So that's the illegal fraud. That's fraud fraud. Then there's legal fraud, where you have a label which says the ancient millstones or, you know, some Italian sounding name, which has absolutely nothing to do with Italy. Uh, you know, the olives were grown somewhere uh, in southern Spain or North Africa and, and then, you know, sold as fake Italian. For a lot more money. Then there's a product called extra light olive oil. That's actually illegal in Europe, but you can buy it in the States. It sounds like low-calorie olive oil, right? But guess what? It's the same 120 calories per tablespoon as all the other. It just doesn't have any flavor, and it doesn't have any color, and it because it has been uh, processed in a refiner. It's been refined. It sounds so good, except that it just means devoid of good stuff. I mean, it's, you know, it's, a, it's an open swindle. 
So those, those are the legal frauds. Not only is this extra light olive oil fraudulent, but it's tasteless and, once again, not good for you. By making it extra light, the companies, first of all, are probably using crap oil to start with. And then, like Tom says, they're removing any of the beneficial compounds. So how common is olive oil fraud, both the fraud fraud and the legal fraud? The truth is, it's hard to know. Unsurprisingly, most of it goes undetected. In 2010, UC Davis did a survey of 14 different brands of imported extra virgin olive oils on California supermarket shelves, and they found that more than two-thirds of them were actually not extra virgin quality at all. In February of this year, Italian authorities arrested 33 suspects from a Calabrian mafia clan. They were, among other things, allegedly exporting fake extra virgin olive oil. They were importing super low-grade crap oil, cleaning it with chemical solvents, and labeling it as extra virgin and exporting it to the U.S. There's a lot of money to be made in this. High-quality olive oil can sell for 50 bucks a gallon, while the fake stuff costs only $7 to make. Tom Mueller told us that the profit margin can be higher than selling cocaine. Olive oil fraud is not a new problem. As we discussed in our episode on food fraud last spring, people have been faking food as long as they've been buying and selling it. You know, the oldest mention of olive oil in writing is on cuneiform tablets from the 24th century B.C. in the kingdom of Ebla. Uh, and those those tablets mention the king's olive oil investigators going around to the mills to make sure those olive oil millers weren't getting up to to their usual tricks. So you already have a an oil fraud squad. So clearly this is an ancient problem. Tom loves telling the story of Monte Testaccio in Rome. It's a hill of potsherds left over from the Roman Empire, and there are fragments of writing on those pieces of terracotta. And if you piece those together, you will see that the writing outside the amphora that were used to import olive oil to Rome mention who grew the olives, where that all, those olives were milled in Spain, North Africa, wherever it was, how much it weighed when it was put on the ship, how much it weighed when it was taken off the ship at the port of Rome. The Romans didn't just do this for fun. And it wasn't just bureaucratic OCD either. They did it because there was an enormous fraud problem. And the way to stop the fraud is to keep very careful tabs on who's doing what, and how much stuff weighs, where it's coming from, what the names of the people are. So that if, if there is a problem, if you open an amphora and you say, ah, God, this smells funny. Who made this? You can go back up the supply chain, find the person, and probably in Roman times cut both their feet off and ask them not to do it again. Nowadays, olive oil fraudsters that are caught tend to get huge fines or jail sentences instead. But you get the picture. So we've told you that a lot of what is sold as extra virgin is not actually extra virgin. But back to a question we posed earlier in the episode, what the hell is extra virgin? Right. So this virgin oil is olive oil produced by mechanical means, um, i.e. grinding and pressing or spinning out the oil. So that's virgin oil. And then there are three grades of virgin oils, extra virgin, virgin, and lampante. So even the stuff that is unfit for human consumption, that is only supposed to be used for fuel, that is still virgin. Extra virgin is the highest quality grade of virgin oil. Um, So that's virgin virgin. That's why I chose the title extra virginity, because it's such a complete joke. I mean, the title itself tells you what a joke it is. It's like extra dead or semi-pregnant. I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. 
But there are a number of hoops olive oil has to jump through to be legally called extra virgin. First of all, it has to pass a number of chemical tests. Listener Brenda Vest is the one who wanted us to do this episode. And Brenda's job is to perform these chemical tests on the olive oil that her company imports. She has a lab near the port of Baltimore, and we gave her a quick call to find out how she does what she does. So let's say that a container comes in. So there's a 6,000-gallon flexi bag that arrives at our facility. So it's the initial quick testing that takes about 15 minutes where we test free fatty acid content, peroxide content. These are two quick titrations that we do in-house. Brenda is checking to make sure that the imported olive oil is not cut with seed oil or cheaper pumice oil. They check to make sure that it hasn't been exposed to too much heat and light. This breaks down the oil into other chemicals that Brenda can test for. So yeah, overall the process can take from 15 minutes to three days. So far, so good, right? Except not. Because A, Tom told us that the FDA doesn't actually require any testing on imported olive oil. So while Brenda's company is going above and beyond, lots of other suppliers aren't. And B, this is going to be even more disappointing to hear, these tests are just not enough on their own. Oil that just passes the chemical tests, uh, you wouldn't touch with a barge pole. You wouldn't get it near your mouth. But it's still technically air diversion. But wait, all is not lost. To be labeled extra virgin, olive oil shouldn't just pass the chemical tests. There's another, more challenging hurdle. It should be able to pass a taste test or a sensory test where 17 specifically defined, legally defined flaws can be identified. So I have been trained now to identify all of the flavor defects and flaws that can arise in olive oil, including rancidity, I'm proud to say. (laughs) That's right. The Catherine who tasted rancid olive oil and loved it is no more. The Catherine of today serves on California Olive Oil's Tasting Council. It's a third-party group that certifies all California-based olive oil. Every California producer sends their oil to the California Olive Oil Tasting Council. First, it has to pass the chemical analysis, low acidity, specific peroxide values, all the types of tests that Brenda does. But then it's time for the tasting. And we blind taste it. We taste it in these little blue glasses so we can't see the color because color is not an indicator of quality. Uh, And we smell it and we taste it. And we are trained to taste for very specific flaws that um, can appear in olive oil. Rancidity is one. Fustiness is another, which is actually a form of fermentation. Wininess or vinegariness is another one that's also a form of fermentation. Grubby is another one. Grubby, in this case, doesn't mean dirty. It means there were too many bugs in the olives, like that pesky olive fly. And there's a few others that we're trained to detect. And so if the producer's oil passed both the chemical analysis and the sensory evaluation, they get a seal that says their oil is extra virgin. A skilled taste panel is an unbelievably sensitive uh, quality judge. And you can game the chemistry, but you can't game the sensory panel if they're well-trained. It's just that there aren't very many of those. So at this point, you might be thinking, well, crap. How am I supposed to know if the olive oil on my kitchen counter is really extra virgin? I'm not trained like Catherine, but I want to make sure I'm getting the good stuff. (laughs) Don't worry, we're not going to leave you on a depressing note. There are a number of things you can do to make sure you're buying real extra virgin olive oil. The first is to look for some kind of third-party verification. California is ahead of the game here because of its third-party testing. Australia is too. If you're in California, look for the California Olive Oil Council seal. If you're buying oils from 
somewhere else, look for some third-party seal. Um, a DOP or an AOC kind of certification from Europe is a great indicator. In fact, if I have to grab olive oil quickly at the store, I'll look for California olive oil and the California olive oil certification seal. It's a good shortcut guarantee of quality. But that's not to say that you can't buy amazing imported oil, too. You just have to do some homework. Like Catherine says, look for an AOC or DOP seal. Tom recommends using Google Maps to see if there are actually any olive trees at the location where the olive oil says it was made. Or you can buy from someone you trust. I usually get my oil from a store that imports bulk olive oil directly from a farm in Italy. That said, I wouldn't buy just any oil at a random grocery store where the label says it's Italian. That is the most likely to be fraudulent. One reliable tell that you're dealing with decent oil is that the bottle will have a harvest date on it. Because good olive oil producers know that freshness is king. If you don't see a harvest date on the bottle, I would recommend not buying that because the producer's obviously not proud enough to put the harvest date on the bottle. You want to find one that's been harvested probably no more than around a year ago. The olive oil is not getting any better as it ages. Remember, it's fruit juice. And that leads us to our next recommendation, which all our experts share. If you buy good olive oil, use it up quickly. Literally, the chemical defects that Brenda is testing for are what is happening to your oil as it sits on your counter getting old. It breaks my heart. I don't give olive oil as gifts anymore because so many times I've given a gift of olive oil, of a really good bottle of olive oil and said, here, here, this is the real stuff. And they say, oh, how fantastic. That's great. And I go to their house a year later and it's still there collecting dust. And I say, so what's the story here? And they say, well, we're waiting for a special occasion. <laughs> and it's uh, it's heartbreaking because this is not a special occasion food. This is, I mean, this is everyday food. And even if it's very expensive, it's something that you use on a daily basis and should be in the middle of the table. Now you know how to buy oil and you know how quickly you need to use it. You have great olive oil on your shelf. Time for something fun. Enjoying it. The cool thing is that extra virgin olive oil that passes the sensory panel can still taste wildly different based on where the olives were grown, the climate and time of year, the type of olive, and how they were processed. You can get fresh cut grass, you can get tomato leaf, you can get green almond, nuttiness, and even kiwi flavors. Anna told us a story about an olive oil from Sicily that had an incredible scent of tomatoes. It wasn't infused with tomatoes. It just literally smelled like tomatoes. So she decided to use it to play a trick on her kids. I give them two pieces of pizza and I tell them which one you like more. One with our Tuscany blend and one with this variety from Sicilia that smell tomato. And they say, Mama, the tomato are much better of this pizza. It's exactly the same. The kids thought that one piece of pizza tasted better because it had more tomatoey tomatoes. But the tomatoes were the same. It was just the oil that was different. And this is where you get to have fun with your olive oil. Mixing up the pairings. A softer Ligurian oil is often better with fish. A peppery Tuscan oil stands up to beans. Those are geographical differences, but you can also find single variety olive oils. So an olive oil made only from Frantoyo olives, for example, or Arbequina. And those bring different flavors to the olive oil party, too. If you have different oils that you want to try side by side to really appreciate the differences, Tom has a simple recommendation, mashed potatoes. Take mashed potatoes and have three different, really different olive oils and try one of each. Just mashed potatoes and put, while it's still steaming, the a really good olive oil on there and make a little reservoir in the middle and fill it with olive oil and put your face over it before you eat it and smell. 
I mean, it's it's quite it's, it begins to be, you know, uh, wine tasting without the posing and the, the terminology because you really smell it. You put your snout over it and you smell it, and it really is special. Special, but maybe not as instantly compelling as Catherine's recommendation. You can make a chocolate cake, an olive oil chocolate cake. You could drizzle chocolate ice cream with olive oil and a couple grains of sea salt is lovely. I just find chocolate and a really robust olive oil just pushes all my buttons. Warning, if you are hungry right now, we are not done listing insanely delicious ways to consume olive oil. You know, start off with vegetables. Start off with whatever vegetables you like and put some on there and then put it down and then put some more on there. I mean, put a lot on there. It has to be dripping with olive oil. And I challenge people not to find it vastly better. This has been the Italian trick to make vegetables delicious for centuries. Some English travelers in Florence in the late 16th century marveled at the amount of vegetables these Tuscans ate. And they said, you know, really, they can only choke it down by putting this olive oil on it. Uh, That's the only way that I can understand their, their, their ability to eat so many vegetables. I happen to love vegetables and don't have to choke them down, but I agree that they taste even better with a really healthy glug of olive oil poured on them right before you eat them. This is what Catherine and Tom are telling you to do. It's something that's not super common in America. Pour olive oil on after you're done cooking. Use it on vegetables, drizzle it on your soups. It can make food sparkle. But none of these delicious serving suggestions is what Catherine and Robin said when we asked them how they were going to enjoy their very first oil. I know what your answer would be. What's my answer? Just give them a loaf of bread. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, like little, little pita breads. Yeah, I got to toast them up, dip them. I'm a big dipper. Big olive oil dipper. I love a super simple pot of beans. Super plain, not spiced up any, just simple with fresh, or maybe our first crush. I want the pot of beans drizzled with a lot of freshly made olive oil. Thanks so much to Anna Casade in Tuscany and to Tony Mazzaglia, who introduced us to her. Take Tony's food tours, tasteflorence.com. Thanks also to Catherine Tomagen and Robin Sloan. You can find out more about their first harvest and how to get hold of it at gastropod.com, where we have links to all the books and papers and olive groves we mentioned this episode. Not to mention video of the vibrating rakes. Thanks to Tom Mueller, author of Extra Virginity, and Rodrigo Almeida at UC Berkeley. And a huge thanks to listener Brenda Vest. We love our listeners, and we love your suggestions, and we love it even more when you take part in our share gastropod.com slash share. It's only running through the end of the year, so get in there now. We promised you one last moment from our visit to Catherine and Robin's Olive Grove, their first taste of their first oil. What are you thinking? Mmm. Oh, yeah. It's quite robust because it's so fresh. Uh, So I'm getting really nice bitterness and pungency. And some, it's quite grassy, but also kind of a a few other descriptors I might use is like a green almond, which is a really particular descriptor for olive oil, which is really nice. I don't know what else. It's just, it's good. I'm really happy with it. We will put this in a bottle and love it. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express Card. 
You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food. You're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. 